90% of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information, but don't panic. It's not an exact science. Hey, Shannon, how are you? I'm surviving. <laughs> how about you? I'm going to put myself in that same boat. Uh, <laughs> no, we had about a uh, half a foot of snow over the weekend. and that's We had snow, too. Yeah. It was real cute. It was like half a millimeter or something. But everything still shut down, right? Uh, no, I was real shocked, actually. I think we got burned last year because we had a couple of like terrifying forecasts of intense ice and snow. And two times last year, it entirely busted. There was no precip at all. Ooh. And everything had pre-shut down. So we learned our lesson a little bit. Uh, I wanted to, as a joke, get my snow ruler out. But it just, yeah. <laughs> there was so little. And it just looked so sad. And yeah. <laughs> so. <laughs> yeah, it was, uh, it was really coming down here. But we're... Warming back up for a little bit and then potentially getting more snow next weekend. It's it's that wonderful transition time. Right. Yeah, exactly. I remember when I lived in Colorado playing playing golf at this time and there would be like snow piles on certain parts of the holes, <laughs> right? but it'd be like 75 degrees. So just like Oklahoma. <laughs> oh, absolutely. So that's actually not a bad segue into today's show topic. Exactly. So, because we got some snow, I thought we'd talk about Snowball Earth. <laughs> yeah, so Snowball Earth, what does that mean exactly? Right, so we had talked a little bit last week about delving into these, some of these paleo climate topics, and Snowball Earth is sort of a really cool history of science type story, as well as showing a lot of very strange paleoclimate occurrences from the neater from the neoproterozoic era so that's about 860 to 630 million years ago so a long time ago right not necessarily terribly long geologically speaking but right right yeah exactly i mean it's it's back in the pre-cambrian which we think is you know ages ago but when you're exactly right when you put it towards the whole like age of the earth thing it's not that much <laughs> <laughs> right. Yep. But 0. 0.8 out of 4.6. Right, yeah, exactly. Uh, <laughs> but uh so this is pretty much when the whole earth was covered in ice or snow of some form, right? Right. And so this is a big contention because this is a because this is a big thing to say the whole earth was covered in ice. This is obviously a big contentious topic and there is a lot of fighting and actually there still is. Um I I don't want to present this as 100% solved because it's not but it mostly is so back in the neoproterozoic there were several times four two for sure maybe four maybe five where earth <laughs> yeah i know it's mostly not, solved right <laughs> it's not an exact science john <laughs> where earth was totally covered in ice um and this is a this is a weird thing to say you know it's not something we've seen. We obviously have ice at the poles now. We're in an ice house climate where we have glaciers everywhere. But this isn't that. This is everything covered in ice. And why we fa started to say this, I mean, it began with field work, which is an awesome place to begin for a geology story. <laughs> oh, right. So I, 
I see why you love this story because there's so many cool field components you're trying to figure out. <laughs> it's absolutely when and what exactly. Happened. Exactly. So it's, uh, not, it's not only field components, but Paleo Mag solved solved it. So yeah, it's it's really my favorite story. <laughs> so this all starts with somebody named Brian Harland at Cambridge, right? Right. Exactly. So he was a really field intensive um, geologist that studied the Arctic. Uh, he was a very active publisher, so I know we've read one of these papers before that talked about the percent of publishing. He had over like 500 papers in his time at Cambridge. Wow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and um, the time period we're talking about is, you know, the 50s, around that time, the 50s and 60s. And he was an early adopter of plate tectonics. And you can't overemphasize how young the adoption of plate tectonics is most of the professors that you and i had weren't taught plate tectonics and it's like right in the 50s and 60s it was a very unpopular opinion right exactly and it's like the backbone of (laughs) geology now you know i spend months on plate tectonics in class um so it's really interesting so he was an early adopter of this theory and he was always on the lookout i think for field evidence to show this and that's where we come to svalbard which is in norway right um where he saw in the rocks evidence of tropical climates. So how do you get that? <laughs> well, I mean, you can think of a couple ways, right? So maybe the climate was tropical there at one time, mm-hmm. or maybe that place was not where it is currently on the face of the earth because of plate tectonics. Right, exactly. Or maybe it was both of those things happening. <laughs> well, and in science has generally the answer. It's neither in member. It's always a combination and you can't tell exactly how much of either one. Right? Uh, exactly. But all you ever learn about are in members. <laughs> so it's a terrible, terrible educational pedagogy. But that's another, that's another show. Um, So exactly. So Brian Harlan saw this evidence and said, hmm, either Norway hasn't always been here or Norway was really warm. And he started looking for other evidence in this area of climate change. And he also found evidence of glaciation, which, okay, it's glaciated now. That's not surprising. But he found evidence of glaciation from the Neoproterozoic or 650 million years ago. And so when you're thinking about how to tell where a plate was at any given time in the history of earth uh, your techniques are pretty limited and one of the one of the key players here be paleomag Woo-hoo! paleomag to the rescue <laughs> that's exactly right um and so <laughs> that's what it is and we've talked about this before when you're forming rocks on any environment you know you can lock in earth's magnetization when those rocks were formed and so what you can do is build basically a map of what earth's magnetization was and where that plate was with regards to the magnetic poles and this assumes obviously that the magnetic pole has always roughly been where it is we've always had this big dipole in the middle of the earth um and even though it switches back and forth it's still roughly than where it is, and we can reconstruct where the plates are. So Norway, at 650 million years ago, uh, was in pretty low latitudes. And so this is the problem. How do you get glaciation near the equator? Well, and... Okay, so you made the paleomagnetic story sound pretty simple. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> but there are a lot of a lot of caveats there, right? Like maybe the rock was remagnetized at some time, right. or maybe there were some kind of processes that happened to it afterwards that altered the magnetization. Uh, it was deformed in some way and you couldn't tell maybe your assumption about the dipole is just garbage uh or maybe you measured it wrong (laughs) all of these things are true and we're going to act like a meteorologist and assume none of them are true (laughs) well i mean some of these you can get some pretty good evidence to combat right so you can do some special uh, statistical tests if the the sediment's been deformed Absolutely. and try to tell mm-hmm. if the magnetization was before or after or during folding. Again, it almost always comes out during. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, a terrible test, but yes, you're correct. <laughs> and so there's some things like that, but you know, paleomagnet our paleomagnetism was still a pretty young science. We've talked about the origin of paleomagnetics before on the show and the the squid sensors. This was still sort of cutting edge untrusted technology yeah it sure was i mean people don't trust it now for all those reasons you just said because <laughs> we got some really <laughs> weird ideas about what the magnetic field of the earth could have looked like a long time ago not a dipole but maybe an octopole which is all right really weird <laughs> and then what if you get a continent that isn't just moving in a linear tra- trajectory but it actually like circles back around on itself so then that's kind of hard to tell um, where it was during time. So we have a lot of paleomagnetic tests to determine if a magnetization was primary or occurred when the rock was formed, or we can test for if it was secondary and what was the event that happened. Um, so yeah, it was really new then. That was the problem, but none of those were the problem that he ran into when people said his paleomagnetics were wrong. And the problem that he ran into <laughs> was the fact that his PMAG lab was located very close to a parking lot. And so this, people were saying, was skewing it because he had inadequate magnetic shielding, so the, all the metal in the parking lot was affecting his results? Yep, exactly. That's exactly right. <laughs> but besides that pesky magnetic car problem, <laughs> um, there was also the climate modelers that got in the way. All right. So the climate modelers then also looked at this and said, no, there's no way that you're going to get glaciation at the equator. Right. And Period. She, exactly. So it was a really simple climate model. Um, this Russian scientist, Mikhail Budyuko, uh used, and this was in the late 60s. And he said, all right, sun's output at this time, if we will recall our faint young sun show that we did, um, it was about 6% less than it is today. And if you covered earth and ice, you get this thing called the ice albedo effect. So what's albedo? It's reflectivity. Ice and snow are highly reflective, so much so that this climate model stated if you cover the globe in ice, that ice albedo effect is so high, basically making our albedo one, that you could never get any heat into that Earth system, and therefore you'd never escape a snowball. Right, so albedo of one is a perfect reflector, and zero is a perfect absorber, right? right? Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah, and so the idea then is, well, we should still be covered in ice. (laughs) Right. (laughs) 
<laughs> but it was a relatively simple model and there are some relatively limited computing resources to run it on then. Exactly. And I think just like Paleo Mag wasn't trusted, I think there wasn't much to fight this climate model back with is there wasn't anything that was powerful enough to, you know, overcome this. And people are like, Oh, well, you're right. Like it just, it, it's real simple and it makes a lot of sense. There's no way. How could you ever heat up? Like, because the sun is your source of energy. You don't have the sun. Okay. You're not going to escape it. And it actually kind of put the debate on hold for a long time because there was no way to get out of it. And this whole time you've got Brian Harland going, but look at the rocks. <laughs> exactly. I mean, isn't this the story of everything? I'm sure you had Alfred Wegener who came up with, you know, continental drift saying, but look at the rocks. <laughs> <laughs> right. Look at the evidence. This is not a crazy theory. Exactly. Uh, but let me play tectonics was put on hold for a long time. Uh, so like you said, this was probably 20 to 30 years of not much activity. Right. Exactly. So I want everyone in the in the audience who has this crazy idea and no one believes it. You know, you just got to hold on for a long time and eventually, right. eventually it will be accepted. Right. <laughs> and luckily, Brian Harlan didn't die before this became fairly accepted. So that's a that's a positive. Which spin. is rare in geologic debates. Yeah, exactly. Uh. <laughs> exactly. Um, so I want to paint a picture before we go on to solving this puzzle, of what the Proterozoic Earth looks like. Because um, it looks a lot different than what it is today. Yeah, so you already mentioned that the sun was about 6% less luminous. Mm -hmm. So we had less incoming solar radiation. Mm -hmm. uh, and there was also less daylight. Time. Right. So a big deal when we talk about, and this is what I want to talk about in the upcoming weeks too, to just sort of have a little mini series on climate and paleoclimate, is there are orbital parameters that are a big deal in terms of climate. We talked about this when we talked about the faint young sun, but it's not just solar luminosity. It's stuff like, are we at perihelion or aphelion? Are we close to or far away from the sun in our orbit? Because our orbit is in a perfect circle right? Um, where is the earth tilted? And then, like you just said, the spin of the earth has changed over time as well. So daytime then, only about 22 hours instead of 24. Right. And the, the surface of the earth looked way different too. We still right. had uh, Rodinia, this giant supercontinent somewhere. Yeah. On the planet. <laughs> exactly. And so a lot of this evidence for these supercontinent cycles um, <laughs> is rooted in paleomag because we see these primary magnetizations that change over time from these igneous rocks that are being created on the continents and we can reconstruct where Earth's plates were. So we know they're moving now from geodesy, right? You can stick a GPS anywhere and you've got a lot of plate movement and differential plate movement, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so um, back then in the Neoproterozoic, we had the supercontinent Rodinia, and it was kind of sort of towards the southerly-ish part of the globe. Most of the landmass was in the southern hemisphere, unlike today. Um, and this was also a time before we had a lot of life. There, were, there was a lot of sea life, for sure, but it's before the Cambrian explosion, so we don't have really many hard-bodied animals 
at all. It's a bunch of soft-bodied critters and very elemental life forms like cyanobacteria and methanogenic bacteria. Maybe worms by this time? Yeah, I think probably. I mean, who knows, right? They're soft-bodied little things, so... Definitely. Exactly. Yeah, definitely towards the end of the VR Protozoic, you probably had wormy looking things. Um, and there weren't any hard shells. I love this part about paleobiology. There weren't any hard shells because nothing was eating everyone. Like there was no no need for armor because they were eating, you know, other tiny little bacteria and stuff, not each other. So armor doesn't come along until the little worm looked at his little worm friend and said, Hmm, you look tasty. <laughs> <laughs> So that's when that happens. Um, but also the atmosphere was a lot different back then too. Right. So there's different levels of atmospheric gases, which may have had something to do with the massive glaciation. Right. Exactly. So obviously everyone knows that CO2 is one of the gases that we talk about incessantly when we're talking about um, global warming, right? So levels of CO2 and levels of CO2 have fluctuated wildly in the past. We're actually not even anywhere near the highest levels of CO2 we've had in the past. And so... Not to say that where we are isn't alarming, just to clarify. Absolutely. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I know. I always thought There was like no that. life during some of these periods. Correct. <laughs> yes, for, for, for reasons. <laughs> um, right. And that's, you know, there weren't dinosaurs driving cars. Why was CO2 so high in the Mesozoic? Well... Where do you get CO2 from? Where do you actually, where did any of our gases in our first atmosphere come from? And they all came from volcanoes, right? So that's happening. Yeah, I mean, carbonates are a massive storage mechanism. Right, exactly. So the interaction, which is something we will talk about too, the interaction between um, creating rocks, especially carbonate rocks that have carbon in them, Right. Right. (laughs) Um, Creating those takes CO2 out of the atmosphere and puts it in this long-term storage bin of a rock. Um, It takes a long time to do that, obviously. Things like um, weathering of rocks will, weathering of rocks that are on land, that actually takes carbon out of the system as well. And then things like volcanoes adds carbon to the system and things like burning fossil fuels or burning rocks that have carbon in them also add CO2 to the atmospheric system. So where that CO2 lives, like what the carbon cycle is doing, really drives climate. And it turns out that's in part of the answer to the snowball earth debacle, but I won't get ahead of myself. (laughs) Right. So what are some of the ways we knew there were glaciation during this period? Right. Uh, One of the, well, my favorite glacial artifact out of this list is dropstones. <laughs> so I love teaching about dropstones in class because I draw this. I draw this picture, and basically, it's like it's like glacial poop, right? Pretty much. <laughs> uh, you've got junk in the ice, and as this glacier is moving along and maybe melting some at the base, these drop out. Right, and so <laughs> sometimes that might not be a big deal. And you might not be able to tell it's a dropstone, but when you really can tell is when you have these big continental ice sheets that meet the coast and 
the ice sheets can extend out over the ocean, but at some point that becomes unstable and you start to calve off icebergs, right? And these icebergs have these rocks in them and they float along and do their thing, but where they drop their rocks is in the middle of these nice, quiescent, perfectly horizontal, very fine-grained carbonates that are being formed at the bottom of the ocean. And so when you get this massive boulder that goes blop in the middle of those, and then you just have fine-grained sediment that accumulates around it, I mean, there's not really another mechanism to put that stone out there. So these drop stones are 100% indicative of the presence of glaciers. Right. And on land, like I said, it might not be so easy to make that differentiation. But one of the things that you can find on land that's very easy to make that differentiation is glacial till. Right. Um, So glacial till is weird (laughs) because glaciers, ice really messes up rock. It can carry massive boulders that are house sized. But then what it does to the rest of the rock is like pulverize it into tiny dust. I mean, they call it glacial flour for a reason, right? It's super tiny. And so it's very few mechanisms can create such a mixed grain size. Now, arguably there are, so somebody's going to come back at me. Yes. Sometimes you can get mass flow deposits. So like landslides or something could create something like this, but you can also look at the geometry. And this is where field work becomes important of these deposits and so glacial till in terms of being like a moraine or something like at the toe of a glacier or a lateral moraine along the sides those are pretty indicative of the presence of glaciers and not mass transport deposits and you can also find some things like striations from the glaciers sliding over the rocks mm-hmm. and then our arch nemesis geochemistry oh my gosh <laughs> I just I just threw the word isotopes in here and I hoped we would just gloss over it because you could teach 20 classes about this and I still won't understand it. <laughs> um, I mean that's kind of a kind of hyperbole kind of. <laughs> but the, the, the geochemist the, the geochemists and the signals they look at are very indicative but also at least for me very difficult to wrap my head around. Right. And so the isotopes we're talking about are isotopes of both oxygen and carbon. And it's O18 and O16 and then C13 and C12. And what's nice about these things is that ice prefers one over the other. And so if you can get a record of the oxygen isotopes, whether from the rocks that were in the seawater or, you know, rocks that were on land. This is all very confusing and definitely worth at least a show. (laughs) You can look at those ratios between light and heavy oxygen and determine was the climate warm or cool. Um, You can... Right, you can can even tell, like, the water source. Was this meteoric water or... Right, exactly right. Because preferentially you'll evaporate light oxygen just because... It's easy. The universe is lazy. That's one of my favorite things to say in class, right? And so it's less energy to evaporate an O16 molecule than an O18 molecule and start to entrain it in the precipitation cycles. And so, yeah, it can get real confusing. So let's just leave it at that for oxygen. (laughs) But it is something I want to come back to because looking at those different concentrations is very cool and something I'd like to understand more. Oh, absolutely. 
Um, but isotopes. Uh. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But the carbon ones, the problem is when you look at carbon isotopes in this time period, you can definitely look at the carbon isotopes that are in the rocks. That's good. But we like to, as time goes on, look at carbon isotopes in shells. So in the little animals that live in the water, um, because you have shell forming animals all the way from the top of the water column to the bottom. And it tells you a whole lot about ocean temperature, which is a big deal when you're trying to ice over the entire planet. But what time period are we in? Yeah, there's no little shell making animals. No, no yeah. hard animals. So no. not much luck there, but we've got all these questions now and some of these tools so the pieces are coming together to start to try to solve the puzzle of did snowball earth happen and how? And how do we get out of it? Right, exactly. And this is where this guy named Joe Kirschfink comes along. Um, so Kirschfink is a paleomagnetist. He's at Caltech right now. He's been there since the early 80s. Um, he is the coolest and craziest guy I've ever met. <laughs> like, right. <laughs> Uh, I once saw him do, he, he won this award that was, it's pretty famous in the magnetics community. Um, and he on the stage performed an interpretive dance of plate tectonics. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. <laughs> it was amazing. <laughs> he's pretty fantastic I and mean, he's a genius and he's come up with all these PMAG techniques. And this is where he started. He started out looking at magnetism in general and he actually is famous for understanding and investigating biomagnetism. So, you know, birds have little magnets in them and bees have little magnets in them and how these animals interact with Earth's magnetic field. Right. But then he started getting into the game of trying to figure out what latitude things were at with paleomagnetics. Right, exactly. So this is an, a new game. But he was asked to review some of these papers talking about, you know, using PMAG to determine plate tectonic rates and where, where um, these ancient plates were during the past, like recreating it all the way back as far as we can. And he's looking at these paleo latitudes and he's like, okay, I can do this. And he goes out and he looks at some of these glacial units all over the world. Because he was kind of interested in this story. And he started sampling them and said, let's figure out where what the paleo latitudes are for more of these glacial units. So following up on what uh, Brian Harlan started. And he saw that these glacial units were all over the place in terms of paleo latitude. So that's what you want to do is you want to look at rocks of all the same age. And you've got all of these glacial attributes in them, whether they're drop stones or striations or anything like this. And he says, well, these are all over the world. So if you're going to get glaciers at low paleo latitudes and at high paleo latitudes, well, then obviously it was an ice age of epic proportions. And he's actually the one that dubbed this snowball earth. Right. So we've got some evidence now that this happened, but we still haven't figured out how to get out of snowball earth. <laughs> right. Exactly. Um, so Kirschwinks works on this and he's a big proponent of it and he's, you know, sort of on the bandwagon now and you can see, it's really funny, if you look at the number of publications <laughs> about Snowball Earth or relative 
not snowballers before Kirschwink said it, but or relative to these glaciations, like there's there's quite a few between when Harland first came up with this hypothesis in 1965 that you had a worldwide gladiation, glaciation. There's maybe, you know, three to five a year that are talking about this. And then Kirschwink comes along and says, well, I've got it. How would we get out of this? If you're in this totally stagnant ice ball, you have essentially, and this is kind of mind-blowing if you really take this in, you've essentially shut down the hydrologic cycle. Right. All the water is solid and on the surface. Exactly. So, so this is when you talk about glacial times. Glacial times are actually really dry times. And even though there's all this water everywhere, it's all locked up in ice. And so you've shut down the evaporation, the precipitation, and you just have this dry ice ball. So what do you have to do to warm it? If the sun's not going to do it because you have this ice albedo effect, you know, not just because it's less luminous, but also because it's reflecting all of its energy back. The other thing you can do is change atmospheric chemistry. And how do you quickly and very effectively change atmospheric chemistry in a way it will impact temperature? You add a lot of greenhouse gases. You can't do that with animals like we are today because there aren't any animals, but you can do it with volcanoes. Right. So we start getting volcanism. We start putting carbon back into the atmosphere. We start trapping more of that heat with the greenhouse effect and slowly snowballers starts thawing. Right. Exactly. And, you know, when we first, when we have, we've always got car uh, volcanism going on. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's a joke that I kind of have in class when I talk about paleoclimate, when I'm like, how can we solve this problem? Volcanoes. <laughs> it's always the answer. <laughs> um, so if you shut down all this stuff, you have these volcanoes, but you still, the CO2 can get spewed out into the atmosphere. But since you've shut down the hydrological cycle, not only is it important that you're spewing all this CO2, but because everything's trapped in ice, you're not getting rid of it. So you can build up a tremendous amount of CO2, and then you would start to send Earth into a greenhouse instead of an ice house. And then you swing to the opposite extreme, which is hothouse Earth. <laughs> right, yeah, exactly. We'll talk about that too. Right. <laughs> the Cretaceous was not a fun time. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, so it's funny because you can track this in these number of publications per year about snowball Earth. And once Kirschwink came up with this way out of the snowball, the number of publications soared to like 40 and 50 a year pertaining to this. And so it's kind of a cool story, um, but that's, that's not really where it ends. <laughs> right. So <laughs> like any good theory, once we think we know what's going on, evidence magically starts piling up because people believe in it and are working on it now. <laughs> Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. And so I said in the beginning that there wasn't just one of these. There was probably a couple of different snowballs. And this is the more contentious part of how many of these would we do and what's going on. And so some very famous uh, in the late 90s, very famous geologists, Dan Schrag and Paul Hoffman, um, started to expand on Kirschwing's ideas and came up with these cycles of the snowball earth. And this is where it gets very geological and where fieldwork is amazingly important because what they saw in different areas around the world, um, they were working in Namibia and South Africa, 
mostly is you see these huge things that we call cap carbonates. And so what you'll see is a huge glacial layer. So you've got all these drop stones and it's a really thick layer, a couple meters. And then all of a sudden you'll have hundreds of meters of very finely laminated carbonate. And it has things that we know of when we're talking about sedimentary geology. It'll have things that indicate that these carbonates were deposited super fast. They have the stuff called soft sediment deformation features, which means if you're pouring a whole lot of sediment on top of itself, it can kind of get wavy and buckle. You have these little fluid escapes features. And so hundreds of meters of carbonates were deposited. It is almost like a knife edge straight line between these drop stones and this carbonate deposition. So what could this cycle mean? <laughs> I mean, it sounds like we put a bunch of carbonate in the atmosphere and then we freed up some water and now we're taking some carbonate out. That's exactly it. And so these cycles of no carbonate precipitation because you don't have any hydrologic cycle happening to get this carbon out of the atmosphere, but you do have drop stones happening because you've got glaciers everywhere. And then followed by exactly what you just said. Okay, now we've got all this carbon in the atmosphere. Once you start melting the ice, that rain starts to scrub the carbon out of the atmosphere. It starts to weather rocks again, and it all gets locked up in these cap carbonates that get deposited all over the world. And so there's also some carbon isotopic evidence that goes along with this, which we can talk about when we talk about carbon isotopes, which we'll both have to study before we talk about it. Right. <laughs> um, so Hoffman and Schrag came up with all these um, cycles of these snowball earth. So how do you trigger a snowball earth? Now we know how to get out of it, but how did we get into it in the first place? Um, and so there's sort of a recipe for how to get into the snowball earth, because that's also a problem too. Right. So what are some of the triggers? I mean, you've got this faint young sun, right? But also, it's not that much fainter, right? It's only 6%. So that's probably not it. Um, we have the carbon cycle here on Earth, just like we have the hydrologic cycle. And so maybe the carbon cycle worked differently 600 million years ago. And that carbon cycle thermostat that we have, which we'll talk about um, in future shows, may not have worked the same way. But what you have to do is get rid of all these greenhouse gases in the atmosphere that makes the planet warm. So that's what you need to do to get cold. One way you can do it, as I mentioned earlier, is you can start to scrub the carbon out of the atmosphere by weathering a whole bunch of rocks. Right. So this would be something like you've got a concentrated landmass near the equator. Exactly. If you're going <laughs> to, exactly. So if you're going to assume that Hadley cells and circulation works like it does today, right? You've got the tropics are going to be a place where you have lots of weathering happening. So increased weathering because you've got a lot of rain. And so if you stick all your continents in this area and you weather all the silicate rocks, you're going to get rid of a lot of carbon at a high rate. Um, and so if I say a lot of rocks, well, you also had before this time a lot of basalts being erupted. So you're not, you're creating a lot of rocks that are ready to be weathered. 
So that's a thing. Um, maybe, and this is a big maybe, maybe you had a lot of high oceanic productivity at that time. So saying that you had a lot of gross little things floating in the seawater column, so tiny, tiny organisms that were photosynthetic and were using CO2, so they were, there was enough of them that they took enough CO2 out of the atmosphere that it actually cooled the planet, and you might be able to see this in these isotopes that we'll talk about later. <laughs> and this could be related to, there is potential, if you had a continental rifting episode, that this is going to bury a bunch of that organic carbon. Right, exactly. So that one's a real nice one. And you can get massive amounts of that organic carbon buried if you increase the amount of continental rifting, which we know is going on at this time. Um, so the thing about going into a glacial episode is that you kind of, you just need a little bit of ice. <laughs> and once you get that little bit of ice, this goes really fast. Yeah, so positive feedback is quite the drug. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It takes a long time to come out of a glacial. It takes a long time to melt a lot of ice. But exactly, you start these positive feedbacks once you make some ice. And I said that we had a lot of landmass in the southern hemisphere and around the equator. So once you get that one little seed that happens, especially if you've got some landmass at the poles, very quickly, this ice albedo feedback starts to take over. Because once you get a thick enough piece of ice, you get all this reflection happening of the incoming solar radiation. And so if you can get enough ice starting to take over, that ice albedo effect will take care of the rest. And so once you start to do that, you start to freeze the land, and you start to freeze the ocean, and you get that positive feedback like you just said. Absolutely. So now we know how to get into and out of a snowball earth. Uh, right, exactly. Um, I will say that a lot of the contention, too, because it seems like, geologically speaking, that's all sewn up and it's nice and neat, right? But you have to remember what comes right after the Neoproterozoic, which is the Ediacaran, but I digress. That's... <laughs> <laughs> but after Stick that, to the big time chunks. Right, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but after that is the Cambrian explosion. So if you've got all this ice, how do you get life everywhere? Well, I mean, it's got to be living somewhere, and it's certainly not living on top of the ice. Right, exactly. Um, and so now this is where we have some more <laughs> history of science come in. And this guy who's a planetary scientist at NASA, Chris McKay, he's done a lot of Arctic research, too. Um, he definitely looks at planetary atmospheres, but he's into this very big realm that we should totally have people on to talk about as astrobiology. Uh, in fact, maybe we can get Chris McKay to come on and talk about this. <laughs> exactly. And he said, wait a minute, there's lots of things that live under the ice. I've seen it. What? Yeah, I've seen it. You go scuba diving under the ice in the Arctic, under the ice sheets, and you see things living on the bottom of the ice. And so there's life under the ice. Now, the thing about the ice is that it's pretty clear. So you have to make pretty clear ice. But also the thing about where the ice is, where you have lots of life, is that it's not super thick. So there's a couple of ways that you can get around this whole, is there ice everywhere in a snowballer system? Is there ice almost everywhere? 
Do you have some open water? But people think if you have some open water, say like in a belt around the equator, just say it's not quite cold enough. They think that that's, that's too much water. You wouldn't keep the earth perpetually frozen for a long period of time if you had a lot of open ocean. So what you basically have to do is either have what has been termed slush ball earth. So, <laughs> so open, eye, or open water, but it's kind of full of floating chunks of ice. Um, or you can still crust over totally with ice, but as long as the ice is, say, 20 meters thin or less, um, you can create clear enough ice that you still get solar radiation that penetrates through that whole ice sheet. Um, in terms of that clear ice, it has to do with how fast it forms to not trap bubbles in it. Um, but you can still get lots of things. <laughs> There's actually pictures that I've seen, and you can look these up too, of these like big strings of gross looking algae stuff that's hanging down <laughs> at the bottom of ice. Um, another thing you can do is crack the ice. And if you have cracks in the ice, you can form these refugia or little bitty patches of life, little oases of life that are in open water. So that's another thing that's argued. And all of these are really plausible in a snowballer scenario. Oh, absolutely. Because, I mean, you're not going to freeze the entire ocean. Or are you, man? I don't know. <laughs> it, it, it seems rather unlikely. You've got a lot of heat capacity there. Yeah, yeah. It's absolutely true. I like this thin ice model. It seems to... Um, yeah, and if you do have ice on a liquid, you're going to get bending and cracking as well. Oh, right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. How are you going to keep it keep it that nice? I mean, and there's some really cool, you can look up life that lives under ice. And we have lots of multicellular organisms that live there today, too. So most people or people would have said, no, you couldn't have done this because how could you have gotten life well maybe this is why you had the cambrian explosion too is that you came out of one of these snowball earth you know cycles and that just happened to be an exact tipping point where stuff started to eat each other and then you're like oh look at this explosion of life exactly mm -hmm. i mean there's some weird stuff that's been suggested too and this one was around for a while um is that earth tilt wasn't what it was Today, it was actually really high, like 55 degrees or something. That seems like a pretty significant change. Right, exactly. And how does that happen? You get hit by something. So there's been a lot of weird things to describe Snowball Earth. But I mean, this is how science works, right? You throw this thing out and either we believe it and back it up with data or we don't and we move on. And so some of those triggers, like this high obliquity situation because we got hit by something, it's probably not going to happen because the dynamics of that just don't work out. But this going into it naturally and coming out of it with volcanics is kind of supported by the rock evidence. And so basically it's fairly accepted that these snowball earth time periods existed in the past. Absolutely. But there's still plenty of room for your graduate thesis to add on to this. <laughs> Absolutely. And there's lots of other evidence and arguments against it that could not be encapsulated in this hour that we have. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but there are tons of, if you love to read like science books, there are tons of books about this. And this story of sort of how it came about and everybody working together 
is really neat. And Brian Harlan died in 2003, so he was around for the end of his life was the cap carbonate debate, but he definitely got to see a widespread acceptance of his hypothesis, which is always nice. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So that's the story of Snowball Earth, kids. <laughs> <laughs> and there is, uh, so Gabriel Walker wrote a book on this, mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, which I have not read, but has been pretty highly reviewed. Uh, right. Yeah. So that's one of those. And it's just, it's called Snowball Earth, right? The story of the great global catastrophe that spawned life as we know it. And um, so it talks about all these things that we've talked about in a probably a much better way, but there you go. <laughs> Absolutely. But with that, I think it's probably time that we move on to everybody's favorite segment of the show. Fun Paper Friday. Yay. So speaking. Which Life Finds a Way is a good good segue here. That's exactly what I was going to (laughs) say. It's like we know each other and that's why we do a podcast. (laughs) Yes. So this article is it's a free open access article from plus one uh, it's tool making cockatoos adjust the length but not the width of their tools to function by arsberg at <laughs> all uh this was real weird and i love it and i'm really sad there are no videos <laughs> i know i really was hoping for some good supplemental videos like oh, last week's I mosquito know. paper i saw there were supplements and i got real excited i'm like no these were not the supplements i'm looking for so this is all about how smart cockatoos are at being able to make tools to try to get to food right so have you ever known a cockatoo john uh other than the one that fraser's brother had on the tv show no (laughs) um yeah so i intimately knew a cockatoo (laughs) she wasn't my cockatoo but these birds are real big i mean she was 18 inches tall or something like that so these are not cockatiels don't get that confused um these are the big white birds and they've got the they've got this little fan that comes up on their head and this cockatoo would walk around yeah walk around Mm -hmm. and she would say her name was peanut and she'd say peanut peanut loves you (laughs) it's real creepy Real creepy. So to tell you the truth, this usage of tools by cockatoos does not surprise me at all. But they state in the paper that cockatoos aren't really considered the most tool-using birds or necessarily the brightest. It's... Yes. (laughs) Okay, I'll kind of go with necessarily the brightest. (laughs) But I mean, lots of of birds use tools, right? But this was weird just because you said cockatoos aren't one of those birds. Right, so the the new Chalcedonian crow is the stereotypical bird tool poster child that's studied in lots of papers. <laughs> uh, there are lots of great references in this paper if you want to go look through the bibliography. Uh, yes, yeah, exactly. Um, those are there's also little finches that actually use tools a whole bunch too. But I love that they described this tool was from a novel tool making material. <laughs> cardboard (laughs) oh and this experimental setup oh my gosh this is it's just rife for a video but so they built this clear plastic box and they put a cashew on a stick (laughs) at different levels away from 
the front of the box. And if you knock the cashew off the stick, it kind of travels down this ramp. And so what they did was try to figure out, can these birds make a tool to get the cashew, right? Right. And so they either had to make something that would reach four centimeters, 10 centimeters, or 16 centimeters. And one of the questions was, well, are they just going to rip the whole piece of cardboard and use the whole length? Mm-hmm. And the, the answer is no. Yeah, this is real creepy. <laughs> so they would make a, a tool, they would rip it, and try, or well, they didn't even have to try. They would hold it up to the hole, basically, and then say, this one's too short, throw it aside, and make a longer one. Yeah, that's nuts. Um, did they also, or was this a different study that they just talked about, present them with different lengths of tools that they could pick? Was that a different study? Uh, yeah, that was a different study. Okay, so it's like that's not an unusual thing trying to do this. And that was actually the results from that were really weird because they don't oh, always pick ahead. the longest tool, right? <laughs> yeah, and there was a different study where they tried making tools out of uh, a wood that fractured along the grain of the wood. Mm-hmm. And in that case, they just broke the wood along its length and used the whole thing. There was no need to break it up into smaller chunks. Uh. But with cardboard, it requires energy. They have to make all these punctures with their beak and rip and tear to get it off so they don't want to expend any extra energy. It was so weird that they would choose a length to make it, though. That's strange. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, if you spend any time around birds, it does not surprise me at all, especially these larger birds. Some of them are creepy, creepy smart. So while cockatoos may have been thought as not intelligent, apparently they just don't need to be. (laughs) And the participants in this study were (laughs) Kiwi, Conrad, Pippin, Doolittle, Figaro, and Finny. (laughs) It's really interesting to look at the graphs of how each of these birds approach this problem, right? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) So you can kind of tell who the smarter birds are. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And so so they changed another parameter in here, which was the hole that they had to stick the cardboard through. They changed the size of that hole from smaller to larger, uh, not at the same time that they were changing the distance as a different test. Mm Mm-hmm. And the birds didn't change the width of the cardboard that they pulled off. Right. But this could be just a byproduct of their actual biology, right? Because with a fixed beak, where you grab a piece of cardboard and puncture it really doesn't change much. And so maybe it's too much energy to try to make a wider piece, especially when it seems like they didn't need to, right? Yeah, or maybe they couldn't make a narrower piece right. to so, fit through some of the smaller holes. Right, hence the longer but not wider tool usage. So it was, uh, and I love the figure for that, where they have the pictures, yeah. the close-ups, the creepy close-ups <laughs> of these birds, and annotating the uh, beak. Uh, I know what you call that. You call it gullet on a saw blade, I guess. <laughs> yeah, that is true. Um, yeah, so that height that they could make, which corresponds to the width of the cardboard. Um, I'm impressed with with this rendering of a cockatoo in there in figure one. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like the, the Photoshop, or not Photoshop, Illustrator rendering of a cockatoo is super impressive, whoever did that. <laughs> yeah, so they've got uh, a little diagram of their experimental setup, which... 
a picture would be fine as well. Yep. Sure uh, would. <laughs> and yeah, no, this, I, I loved in the, the final part of the paper uh, on the wit thing, they said this could be a cognitive limit within their tool innovation capabilities. Uh, but their manufacturing technique for cardboard tools suggests in a more ergonomical reason. <laughs> oh, it's, yeah, I love it. It's not even jargon. It's just a beautiful way to say that. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, yeah, this is really interesting. Um, and I, I love the use of a different bird. I, I wonder if somebody thought this up. Oh, well, no, the Gizmodo article talks about how they decided to do this, right? Right. So this was on just noticing right. that these birds were doing this. Exactly. So they were at like a veterinary hospital and they said that a bird had some of his food had fallen out of his cage and he built a tool to rake the food back into the cage. <laughs> That's awesome. So, yeah. The links we go to for food. Exactly. And you never know where inspiration will strike, so pay attention. Right. And some of the papers, not cockatoos, but some of the other birds, uh, said that they were even able to put multiple pieces together to make complex tools. Yeah, that's pretty impressive and creepy. Exactly. (laughs) So if you've got pictures of tools that your pet has fashioned to help them get food that is slightly out of their reach. I know my dog has evolved a very large tongue for this. Uh, <laughs> we would love to see them. Shannon, how can folks get a hold of us? Uh, send us an email, show at don'tpanicgeocast.com. We're on Twitter at don'tpanicgeo. I'm at Shannon Doolin. John is at geo underscore Lehman. Uh, sign on to the Slack chat room on the Software Underground. We're in the Don't Panic channel. And as always, thank you to our Patreon supporters for keeping us going with reading papers about cockatoos eating. (laughs) (laughs) And until next week, remember, don't panic. It's not an exact science. Any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed are solely ours and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers or funding agencies. 